then you raced in and uh, killed your enemies. But these stone Norman fortifications were much, much more formidable. And so began, in England at least, the work of sappers. Sappers would mine under the great castle walls if they'd been unwise enough to build them uh, not on rock. They would uh, prop up the, uh, the tunnel as they went along with uh, wooden props. Then uh, finally they would fill the tunnel with uh, straw and um, dead pigs actually, so they had lots of fat. And then they would set light to it, burn the props, the tunnel would collapse, the wall on top would also collapse and the castle would be defeated. Jesus' parables are sappers. Jesus and uh, Luke, who records him, knew very well that the human heart is a strongly fortified castle. We learned on previous weeks that... um, Uh, Luke writes his gospel to a particular man, a well-educated, non-Jewish Roman citizen he calls Most Excellent Theophilus. And Luke has carefully recorded for Theophilus the, uh, the, the revolutionary values of Jesus. The humble are lifted up. Those who are proud in their inmost thoughts are put down. Jesus has come... Uh, he says, to preach good news to the poor. Luke has recorded how Jesus then told, told his disciples to love their enemies, to forgive, to uh, uh, finally, actually, to embrace a place of shame in society, to take up their cross daily if they wanted to be disciples. And uh, um, Luke knows that that cannot fail but to be the most profound challenge to respectable Theophilus to honourable Theophilus, to wealthy Theophilus. Life and gain and honour will come to him, says Jesus, not by pursuing his present life of uh, gaining the world and being honoured by the world, but actually by embracing a life that the world doesn't much approve of, that is not obsessed by this world, but that is proud of Jesus. A life that is not ashamed to have Jesus as his Master and Lord. Luke knows, though, that that, uh, Theophilus' heart will be pretty well defended against something as radical as that. To be honest, the average human heart is pretty well defended against such challenges. So in the second half of Luke's Gospel, we have started to see that um, uh, Jesus begins to tell these subversive stories, these parables. Last week we described it as like guerrilla warfare, smuggling in the grenade past the guards before he lets lets it off. Well, then perhaps we can also use this image of a sapper tunnelling quietly under those those fortifications until finally the tunnel is collapsed and the fortifications come down. Last week we saw that Jesus was particularly exposing lovelessness 
with that story of the, of the Good Samaritan. This week he's going to be talking about something different. Something that uh, today we call self-esteem. Most people of my age or younger grew up with a very simple set of propositions about self-esteem since the 1960s. Low self-esteem was considered to be one of the most significant problems in society. We were told it leads to, leads to problems as diverse as uh, poor exam results, teenage pregnancy, poverty, violence, poor nutrition. And the simple solution which would solve society's problem was to boost self-esteem, to make people feel good about themselves. Everything else will follow, we were told. More recently, researchers started to knock rather a large hole in those old uncertainties. For instance, modern research has demonstrated that uh, Britain is doing really very well in the self-esteem market, much better than it used to be. Um, 94% of uh, British university lecturers think they're better than average. 85% of car drivers think they drive better than average. And the majority of children in schools think they are more intelligent than average. But amongst children, for instance, researchers have shown that high self-esteem tends to cause some problems. Children with very high self-esteem are worse at cooperating with others. Actually, when they're given a, co- a cooperative task, they always blame the other ones when it goes wrong. Couldn't be me. I'm so wonderful. They're uh, um, more prone to underachieving, funnily enough. They tend um, to underachieve in similar ways to children with very low self-esteem. Under, underachieved, but for different reasons. They're convinced that the whole examination system is unfair and that they're so able they don't really need to do any work and uh, whatever uh, happens they'll do fine. They're prone to violent behaviour as well, these high self-esteem children, because they consider others to be inferior and they are prone to outbursts of anger if they're thwarted. And uh, when they grow up, they're actually more prone to uh, having their relationships break down because when things get a little bit tough, they're convinced that there's someone else out there who will recognise them as the wonderful person they really are. And more and more research is starting to build a picture of Western children who actually have very high self-esteem in many cases. But actually are not doing very well. Commentators have pointed out actually that high self-esteem in a nation as a whole tends to generate its own problems as well. Japanese expansionism in the 1930s and 40s that was accompanied by terrible atrocities was built on uh, a sense of national superiority in Japan or a Nazi Germany was driven by a myth of Aryan supremacy. Now, low self-esteem does have negative consequences, but but high self-esteem as well has its problems. Jesus addresses people with low self-esteem 
The very hairs on your head are numbered, he says. Not even a sparrow is forgotten by God you are wor- uh, and you are worth more than many sparrows. But actually here in Luke 14, Jesus is addressing the vast majority of us. The majority who actually have pretty high view of ourselves. But maybe we shouldn't use that word high self-esteem. Maybe we should use an older word. A word that uh, uh, is uh, used to describe what has always been recognised as one of the seven deadly sins. Pride. See, Luke knows that Theophilus is likely to be a man of high self-esteem. He's likely to be a man who is proud. Just as the besetting sin, I fear, of, of, of many of us here, perhaps those of us who have excelled at school and earned a good degree, is pride. Actually, even amongst the rest of us, There's a hidden pride. A pride that says, I'm an ordinary person. A pride that says, they may be clever, but I've got common sense. A pride that says, uh, um, they may be middle class, but I'm one of the proletariat, the real people. Pride as well in churches so often rears its head. I belong to the best church imaginable. I've got it all sorted. I know what it uh, uh, means to be a real Christian and frankly the rest of people aren't so clear as me. Spiritual pride in particular is very, very dangerous. Actually, It's been there in human society since Adam and Eve decided they wouldn't obey God. They'd eat that fruit and be like God. Luke 14 then describes people who are painfully like us. Jesus is sitting at the table of a prominent Pharisee. This is a proud establishment full of proud people and Jesus therefore starts sending in his sappers, his miners, his, his, uh, his little agents who will bring down the fortifications. He begins, and um, we'll skip over the first uh, few verses, he begins um, in verse 7 to, to show them, first of all, pride is stupid. When he noticed how the guests, the guests at this prominent Pharisee's table, took the places of honour at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honour, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both, both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat, and then humiliated, you will have to take the, the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honoured in the presence of all your fellow guests. 
It's pretty obvious really, says Jesus, if you choose the highest position, then the only way is down. Verse 9, Jesus actually strings out the sentence describing this person heading towards the lowest place in the ta- at the table, at the long table. This is a long walk of shame with everyone watching him. Perhaps you can imagine the conversation stopping. <gasps> I thought he took that place because he was great. All we can hear is his footsteps on the wooden floor as he trudges down to the lowest place at the table. How could he have been so stupid? To think just by taking the place at the top, he could command it. But on the other hand, says Jesus, if he doesn't push himself forward, then uh, uh, he can only get a good surprise. He can only be hailed as, with friend, move up to a better place. It's obvious he's wiser, isn't it? And yet, frankly, we have to admit, many people's lives are dominated by just this sort of um, jostling for the best possible place. We uh, manoeuvre ourselves into a position of honour. We uh, uh, devote our lives and our energy and every, all our being not particularly to serving God, but frankly, to getting ourselves into a better position in society. Jesus says, why not just start at the bottom and float up to your natural level? If you know uh, uh, many people of my age or above, you will find a distressingly large number of them who have had to be brought down with a pretty heavy thump. You don't really deserve to be here. Go down. Why insist on trying to fly when we haven't got wings? Pride is... Stupid, then, says Jesus. Tries to convince us that we deserve a place of honour when we just don't. And spiritual pride so often forces God to tap us on the shoulder and say, what on earth are you doing? Why on earth are you putting yourself in that position? Why on earth are you claiming that about yourself? Why on earth are you living as if you were such a great person? I'm going to have to bring you down. And the number of Christians who have walked that long walk of shame is frightening. Don't put yourself up there in the first place, says Jesus. Don't let that proud voice in your ear speak to you about what a great place you deserve. Because, says Jesus, verse 11, 
Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Pride is stupid then, says Jesus. Theophilus, you learn that, says Luke. Then, Jesus moves on to say something, a, a second thing. Pride, as well, leaves us poor. And it does so in a particular way. As Jesus talks to these proud people, he recognises something about them, a behaviour pattern that they have, which is actually commonly repeated amongst uh, proud people. They surround themselves with people who are like them, with people who who bolster their feeling of high self-esteem. They either do it because they actually despise other groups and so don't want to associate with them, or they do it because their high self-esteem is actually quite fragile and so it needs constant maintenance of people who will never challenge them in any profound way. But whichever way they, 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 whatever their underlying reason, they surround themselves by birds of a feather. Jesus describes that activity as he criticises it in verse 12. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back. So you will be repaid. This is the point, you see. It's all about mutual enrichment now. It's all about getting rich now. That's our focus. Rich in terms, not least, of what people think of us. Actually in our so-called pluralistic society increasingly people are spotting that we are not living in a pluralistic society at all. We are living in little isolated bubbles of mutual aberration. British uh, um, people are actually uh, actually these days mix less across barriers of class and uh, education and age than we did uh, a generation ago. Social mobility is much less. And as actually um, ethnic minority communities come to, uh, uh, to, to live uh, uh, in this country, we find that not only do they only socialise and live within their own little community, but actually the, uh, the white majority um, never bothers to go and meet them. And one wonders whether it's not an unintended uh, consequence of this bolstering and encouragement of pride. The theoreticians said that it would make us so much more confident that we'd be happy to mix with everyone. But actually, so often, it makes us rather dismissive of others and not prepared to mix with others. And um, we here are not above that behaviour. I worry actually that, that uh, here in the church, it just gets a little bit bigger as it just expands. What, what we see happening is those little bubbles starting to form. I wonder whether actually 
if I was being really mischievous. I could map out where we're sitting and spot those little bubbles. Bubbles where relationships are not forming beyond. Students here, how many of the older generation have you gone up to and said, hello, who are you? I'm so and so. I know it's daunting. I know we feel so small compared with them. I know you think I'm new. 50% of people in this room have come in the last two years. Or older people. Have you relaxed back into actually those relationships that Jesus describes as just people who you happen to like who will repay you quickly with their mutual admiration. Have you stretched beyond that? Jesus is absolutely clear. Actually, if we're interested in real spiritual blessing, if we're interested in getting rich as far as God is concerned, then we specifically, absolutely specifically and in a focused way, are to invest in relationships which will not pay back. Do you see what he says? When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. And then you will be blessed, although they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You see, you see God's just. If you do something that uh, repays in the, in the short term, then he crosses that off his list. That's great, that's fine. Hope you enjoyed it, because that's the only benefit you'll get from it. But if we do something because we love Christ that gives no immediate benefit. But actually it's quite costly. Then he has an outstanding debt to us, which he will repay at the resurrection of the righteous. And so, says Jesus, in God's economy, proud people who who disdain others and will not go beyond their comfort uh, zone, end up eternally poor. Maybe it would be shocking for us to add up, in fact, the number of things that we have done that have had no payback at all, but have just been a cost. And then to remember those are the only things that God is going to count in our favour in eternity. That's what Jesus says. Pride in that particular way leaves us poor. But then Jesus tops that by sending in his best little sapper his best little miner, his best little destroyer of the fortifications. Another parable. A parable that uh, tunnels in really quite ruthlessly and tells us something more profound yet. Yes, pride is stupid, said Jesus. 
as pride in a particular way leaves us poor, said Jesus. Now he's going to tell us pride is catastrophic. See, after his little talk to his guests at this table, you can imagine there being a slightly awkward silence, as I can see some of you sh- shifting on your, uh, on your seats. And then, um, a rather British way, someone who is uh, a little bit embarrassed at the situation decides to uh, lighten the atmosphere um, by um, um, perking up with a, with, a, with a nice sort of anodyne spiritual observation. One of those at the table heard this. He said, verse 15 to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. In other words, he's saying, thank you so much, Jesus, for prodding us a little. Thank you for warning us against pride. We are so foolish sometimes. Thank you for your little homily about humbly caring for others. We'll certainly make sure we, we, we'll, we do better because after all, all of us in this room are longing for the heavenly riches of the final banquet, aren't we? The feast that matters to us most is the heavenly one. Not so fast, says Jesus. Let me tell you another story. A certain man was preparing a great banquet inviting, and invited many guests, but at, that time, at the time of the banquet he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and, a field and I must go and see it, please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out please excuse me. And still another said, I've just got married so I can't come. In Jesus' day, a banquet would be first announced, invitations sent out and invitations accepted um, even before um, uh, the, the banquet was prepared. And then when it was prepared, someone would go around and finally announce to all those who had accepted it that it was ready. So this servant is going, uh, going around to people who have said, yes, I'd love to come. But it is those very people who make excuses and lame excuses too. A newly bought field didn't need to be expect, inspected that minute. Trying out five oxen could, uh, 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 could wait a day or two. And um, it's not like this person who's, ju- who's just got married is, is missing his wedding. No, he's already married and they didn't have honeymoons in those days. So frankly, a nice time at a feast would uh, do as a pretty nice substitute, I would have thought. But they refuse, every one of them. And the first two in this story, like uh, no doubt his hearers, are certainly rich. Buying a field requires some considerable means. Um, Ploughing, for most um, people in Palestine, was done with one or two oxen. So a man with five oxen is an agribusinessman, one of those great big um, uh, uh, combine harvesters you see in East Anglia. He's wealthy. In fact, they're tied up with accumulating wealth and living with wealth. The third person is absorbed in another very 21st century obsession, relationships. And none of those are bad. Not at all. None of those are not to be enjoyed. That's not the point. The point is that these people allow those things 
to stop them going to the feast. Indeed, uh, the man who's just got married doesn't even bother to be polite about it. He doesn't say, please excuse me. He just says, I can't come. But this master who has made this banquet is determined to fill his house. The servant came back, verse 21, and reported to his master all these things and the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. The very people who actually were absent from that dining room at that moment and whom Jesus said shouldn't have been are the very people whom this master is going to to invite in to populate his house. And more than that, he's going to go beyond that. Verse 22, Sir, the servant said when he's brought them all in, uh, what you've ordered has been done but there is still room. The master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. Almost certainly this is, a, this is an allusion to the fact that God's people will, will ultimately come from beyond the Jews, beyond the traditional people of God. Just as today God's people come from beyond the, the traditional Western country, uh, Christian countries in the West, from beyond traditional religious uh, um, uh, uh, backgrounds proud so-called Christian countries are actually being eclipsed by those who are flooding into God's house from China and Africa as I've said on other occasions and uh, here is why says Jesus the main point is very very blunt verse 22 I tell you not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Their wall has collapsed. The cosy little dinner party full of people jostling for the top place and carefully excluding undesirables has been exposed. They've not just been wrapped over the knuckles, you see. They've been condemned. Not one, says the Master, will get a taste. And suddenly we realise, when Jesus said, um, after his little parable of uh, being um, moved up the table and being shamed, when he said, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He wasn't talking actually about shifting a little bit in position in the kingdom of God. He was talking about the possibility of being excluded. When he warned people that who, who care only for people who will yield rewards now... He was implying not just that it will be a poorer life in eternity but that it will be condemnation for eternity. And he's made that plain with this story. Why? 
Why are these people shut out? Actually, let's be really clear. It's because they themselves have refused. Though they said that uh, they were heading for heavens, though their community was vibrant, mutually given community, though they expressed uh, uh, enormous confidence and optimism about their heavenly rewards, In the end, says Jesus, in a most extraordinary, surprising way, they said, no thanks. And if there's not a shiver running down our spines this morning, Jesus has not done his work. The little sappers have not got in and crumbled our defences yet because we are meant to shiver. We are meant to to be concerned. We are meant to feel painfully exposed by these parables. I've said before in this uh, this series on on Luke that I'm, I'm really concerned that God's church in this country resembles this respectable Pharisee's table far too much. Now, we, we have pressures on ourselves, but actually so did the Pharisees in that, uh, uh, with the Roman authorities there outside and um, paradoxically that forced them into a much tighter, much less outward looking community a community that was uh, massively committed to negotiating a complex ladder of honour, was massively committed to mutual support amongst themselves, I fear, for instance, that our love to do evangelism amongst people like us. It's not always just because they're strategic, reachable people. Sometimes perhaps we just don't want the party ruined by undesirables. Whereas God himself is self-evidently sending out servants into the streets and alleys and roads and country lines of this world, compelling them to come in. You don't, don't need to spend long looking at the church in this world in the 21st century to see how obvious that is. And it is frankly not happening in this country at the moment. And I sit there and I just wonder whether that's because far, there are far too few servants going out to do their master's bidding and far too many sitting at the Pharisees' table. We live in a very proud land and we live with a proud church tradition and maybe that's why the church is shrinking. As I've read my Bible and 
and as I've read church history, I have become absolutely convinced that God's church will be set on fire in this country, that God's church will grow in this country, that God's church will become strong again in this country as she discovers God's heart for the poor, God's heart for ordinary people, not just the university elite, not just the wealthy people in the city. It is shocking how the strongest, uni- uh, the strongest churches in this country are, in, are, are only in university towns and in wealthy parts of, uh, 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 of the city of London, except for the, the prominent exception of ethnic minority churches. And I, I am absolutely convinced that we as a church have an opportunity to make a difference. That we as a church have an opportunity to be different. Remember, uh, Luke is addressing this most excellent Theophilus. We worship in uh, a part of, of um, the world, part of the, part of the city of Oxford, that has 75% with a, of people with a degree. The national average is 19%. This part of Oxford is full of Theophiluses. But we also worship near the Cowley Road, which was not so long ago named as one of the most deprived areas in Britain. And although the Cowley Road itself has climbed out of that uh, category, we are on the edge of, of other uh, areas that are still labelled as uh, most deprived. We have a superb opportunity to learn what Luke wants to teach Theophilus. You see? to learn to live it. And as we as a church have such a high turnover of people who go on elsewhere, actually to have the opportunity to have some influence more widely. And I am not sure whether we're going to do it. For a whole range of reasons. Pride just intrudes again and again and again in our hearts, doesn't it? But I long to see us do it. Because I really do think this is something vital that God's church in this country needs to learn. I really do feel God has placed us in this place to learn that. Jesus made it plain, didn't he? Pride hampers us. Pride is stupid. Pride leaves us poor. Pride actually jeopardises our salvation. Pride saps the very life from God's people. Oh, that we would learn to be different. And that that would be marked more than anything by a willingness to do what Jesus 
says they should do. Then you give a banquet. Invite the poor, crippled, the lame and the blind. You will be blessed, although they cannot repay you. You will be repaid of the resurrection of the righteous. Pride, says Jesus, if it goes untamed, sends us to hell.